Welcome to Integrated Rhythm. We're so glad you're here. Have you ever wondered how we've come to know what we know about the past? Have you ever wondered about what it looks like to research social dancers that made a big impact on the world, but may not have received the same recognition due them because they were social dancers or in many cases because they were people of color who were social dancers? In this episode, you'll hear about a Lindy Hopper affectionately called Tiny Bunch. You'll hear how Bobby and our guest Lewis Orchard, Baboa dancer and highly regarded researcher, embarked on a journey to find more information about this dancer. Along the way, they consulted Shawnee Brown in their research process. This interview reflects on their experiences and some of the intriguing findings associated with researching people of color. As usual, this is a casual conversation and insight into each of our imperfect journeys. Thanks for joining us. Integrated Rhythm with Jasomo and Bobby. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Integrated Rhythm. Uh, We have a very special episode. We have the incredible Shawnee Brown and incredible researcher Lewis Orchard here with us and we're going to start off by telling the story of how we researched the life of John Tiny Bunch, one of the Whitey's Lindy Hoppers, a famous uh, white Whitey's Lindy Hopper known for being a larger than average dancer. And uh, he's mentioned in Norma's books, he's mentioned in Frankie books, but we didn't know that much more about him. And so this all began when going, uh, going through some newspaper archives Occasionally, I'll just put in the name of, uh, if I don't have anything else to do that day, I'll put in the name of a Whitey's Lindy Hopper or or a dancer that we know about and see if they pop up in any newspaper articles. And very rarely does that actually provide much. Like if they were in a Harvest Moon ball, they might pop up in the the finals listing. uh, And then a smaller number of those will pop up in the winners listings of that year. But that's oftentimes the only places where the names of these Whitey's Lindy Hoppers appear in a newspaper. However, I started, uh, we found this one advertisement for a show that was touring in a place called Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. And we'll talk a little bit more about Wilkes Bar. But in the advertisement, it, at the very bottom, it said in huge letters, John Tiny Bunch. And uh, I'm actually going to read the specific description on the ad. The actual ad says, Wesley Tiny Bunch, the Wilkes Bar colored heavyweight doing a Lindy Hop dance with Gertie Green. And that right there is a really interesting sentence to read. Uh, so first off, it, it shows that, okay, that's most likely talking about the Tiny Bunch we know. Uh, second of all, the Wilkes Bar uh, person implies that that's his community. And indeed, when you look through the rest of the newspaper archives, we started seeing a lot of ads from this one town's newspaper, the Wilkes-Barre newspaper, and it would mention this John Bunch throughout, uh, throughout a lot of these articles. And so we started finding interesting things like a tennis match mentioning this person's name or a football match mentioning this person's name. And so we started to realize that John Tiny Bunch, the Lindy Hopper, had grown up in a small city whose newspaper knew of him and were printing lots of stories whenever you know, he did something notable in the community. So this was not only uh, in his own community when he was playing tennis or football, it was also when he was a Lindy Hopper coming through town later and they would post up you know, uh, ads and such about, John, you know, about this John Bunch. And so that's when I... Uh, hopped on and asked Lewis Orchard if he could please help me master researcher Lewis Orchard. Uh, so yeah, so I, I went to Lewis. And I think it's worth mentioning that I'm not a Lindy Hopper, so I had never heard of Wesley Tiny Bunch. But this is no problem for me because I am always fascinated to find out about a dancer. And I'm always especially interested to find out about a dancer that Bobby puts my way. And um, my approach is 
kind of different from um, Bobby's because I just kind of go, I don't know who this person is. Let's see what we can find out. And I just go straight in for finding anything at all I can about this person. I don't care what it is. I just want to go kind of full um, family history, actually. I, I tend to go, who are they? Where were they born? How old were they? Anything at all I can find and then see what I can glean and glue onto an actual person rather than uh, an idea of who they might be. So uh, I think with um, uh, Wesley, he, the advantage is his name, Wesley, is kind of unusual. Um, and it, when looking at family history records, I'm trying to filter out to find the person from the information available online. Um, if anyone's ever done any family history, they'll be aware of all the records you can look at. And um, I have a lot of experience doing this in fashion history and also family history myself. So um, one of the things that's interesting doing this with a uh, Lindy Hopper you've never heard of, especially a dancer of color, is you come across a different research experience. So uh, um, Wesley's name to me would be slightly um, tricky in um, the UK it, because it's actually more, more common, like the, the name is more familiar. Um, however, when I was looking at it in American records, it was, it was more unusual and it was actually quite easy to locate him and his family in the Wilkes-Barre area. We knew where he was from. Um, and um, immediately you could get an insight in Tim because you could see it was a small family um, a census record from, I think I found uh, every decade there's a census, if people aren't familiar with this, an American census, which lists family members, their ages, where, they, where they were born. Um, later censuses have interesting details like, did they own a radio? Did they own the land they lived on? What's the rental value of their property? It's all a little bit stalkery, you know, you get this information and um, you can um, then start using it to, to uh, ensure that you've got the right person by comparing it with other information. Um, here, it wasn't too difficult because we knew um, where John Wesley was from. So you could, um, you could find you know, the Bunch family at an address in Wilkes Bar. Um, but another reference that I use is draft cards because they also give a home address and details of the person. Um, and in um, uh, Wesley's case, I think it records his employer from memory. I need to check this. And it indicated the correct employment. So you can start tying information to make sure you've not got the wrong person because uh, in um, research, it is so easy to get carried along on a, a, a sort of imaginative history that you're creating yourself with the wrong information. Uh, family history is classic. It, it, it's, there's so many names, so many people. You, you think you've got a, an unusual original name. You haven't. <laughs> you know, my name, Lewis Orchard. There's several of us. Um, but... Gradually, I started piecing together some some facts about this person, where they were from, and we were able to then tie them in with his um, high school record. And that's where I was trying to direct myself to, because I know from experience that high schools is where you can get photographs. Um, in this case, we found... Um, some good um, yearbooks for... Is it, is it pronounced Coughlin? Yeah, I don't school? know if it's so. It, yeah, it's either Coughlin or Cowlin, but it's a C O U G H L I N kind of place. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if that's the actual way I spelled it. I just rattled that off the top of my head. Yeah, I'd like to revisit pronouncing uh, the names of places in a minute because this is an interesting um, issue. Uh, anyway, this high school had a had a yearbook, like many do, and 
um, luckily we had some of the yearbooks for the years that Wesley attended this school and um, there were some interesting photographs. So I'm looking through the sports section, looking for him in there and he wasn't in there. There was a dance club, but he wasn't photographed in that either. <clears throat> there was a very problematic photograph of a minstrel group um, and we know that he, I think I'm right in thinking, we think he performed in a minstrel group, but yes. he didn't. Go on, Bobby. Yeah. Uh, yes. So the, the minstrel group was, a, you know, such a fascinating picture because first off, American high schools like this one had a minstrel group, which I was not aware of. Um, another thing is interesting is in the photograph, this is not a segregated school. This is a Northern school. And the minstrel group has both white and black teenagers in it as a popular art form at the time. And one of the, one of the most striking articles that we found in the hometown newspaper was this review of a show that was put on by a local minstrel group is the way the, the article phrased it. And they mentioned that the highlight of the show was John Wesley Bunch's dancing. And so John Wesley Bunch danced in that minstrel show and it made, uh, by the way, this, you can go and see this article that was the ultimate result of this, the, the, the life of John of, of tiny bunch. You can find that on songover.com by the way. Um, but you, where you can see this, these photos there. And so basically, uh, there's that happening in this article and then further research showed that indeed it was the local high school's minstrel group performance that the, that the article was talking about. So, um, yeah, looking at these photos, <clears throat> there's a range, there's usually photos of the graduating students, I think that's how you describe them, with portraits. Uh, we didn't have the year that he graduated, but there was a, a class photo for the, um, the lower years. Um, as a European researcher, I'm always confused about sophomore years and high school years and whatever year, I've no idea, um, getting used to that. But there was a, an amazing photo that I love. Um, I'll see if I can give, get Bobby to publish a full copy of the whole photo. It's a double page spread of the whole school. And you're looking at this black dancer. You're looking for a six foot large black dancer in this predominantly white high school. And there's this enormous group of people and there he is, right at the back, hanging off a lamppost or like an ornamental light fitting. And it is the most striking image. It, it um, said a lot to me about my experience of doing this research and looking for him in a photo as a white person. Um, and there he was. It was really, it's really lovely when you find someone like that. It's, it makes them very real. And I say, I'm not a, um, a, a Lindy Hop dancer, I'm a Balboa dancer, so I'm not familiar with a lot of the whitey's dancers, although I'm more so now. And it was so wonderful finding a picture of him as a you know person at school, not, not a dancer, but just him sort of hiding out there in this group photo. You know, we've all been in, in these kind of photos and some of us like to lurk at the back, some of us like to be at the front. Um, and now I kept looking and you'll notice I keep using different versions of his name which is partly because I'm slightly unsure of what his full name is, because it's used in different ways, John Wesley Tiny Bunch. And one of the ways I research is I use all the variations because different publications and points in his life, he does use these names differently. So you can actually find different information by searching under all these different variations. Um, um, I think he was using Wesley Moore when he was playing tennis, for example. And in fact, I searched using different name combinations and found a picture of um, him in the, I think it was the YMCA um, uh, group he was in. And there's a picture of the YMCA, I think it was the black um, division of the Wilkes-Barre um, yeah, YMCA. So and that, that's a great example of one of these stories that we uncover when we're researching is, you know, there's, uh, you know, in one article, so John Wesley Bunch's father 
was very well known in this town, so much well known that in his obituary, which we found through newspaper archives, his obituary took up half of the page of the front page of the paper. And so this, this, and in that obituary, they mentioned all the amazing things that his father had done for the community, including founding the black YMCA in town. And so then you're like, okay, this, per, the black YMCA had to be founded because why? And so then you do the more research and you realize because the white YMCA did not allow black people. And so you have, you know, the story unraveling in this town of about American history, especially in this like small Pennsylvania city, uh, as you go through looking for this information. So there's this great photograph of him in the tennis group, again, uh, hanging out the back um, in the middle of this tennis photograph when he's younger. Um, and the funny thing from my end of this experience is that I'd spent a couple of weeks, you know, delving around um, John Wesley and his family. I looked more into the details of his background because something that was curious to me was why was this um, uh, young black dancer the one of a, a very few black students at this very white school um, in what looked like quite a privileged position. This didn't fit with the kind of cliche idea I might have of uh, someone that was dancing at the Savoy Ballroom. And you looked at it and his father was a tip staff at the local court. So that's a, not what you're expecting from this story. You know, you, you start digging in and I actually started looking at his family background, his, his parents, his grandparents. And I, this is not an area I've got any knowledge in whatsoever. So I was having a very amateurish look at this because it was fascinating. I, was, I noticed that his family had um, been renting a farm in the 19th century, late 19th century. And then the census recorded them owning it. And I was think, uh, very curious as to how that um, route had occurred. So I started looking at um, how this area um, responded to its black population. Um, as Bobby said, we've got one set of people who are barring black attendance from a YMCA, but this was also an area that had a large number of Quaker um, uh, groups. And it was, it was somewhere where the, um, the, the underground, is it called the Underground Railroad, is it, um, was operating through this area. So although I don't know any great detail about this story, just this little insight through this one dancer, I started finding myself rabbit holing through this fascinating uh, conflict between racism and, and anti-racism in this same area. And I could quite happily bury myself in that for six months and look at what was really going on there because it's so fascinating. But that was John Wesley's background. It was, was something, you know, in that area um, that was defining uh, the environment he grew up in and makes it even more fascinating that he goes on to further education at Temple, uh, yeah, I think it was Temple University. Is that correct? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Um, and then we find him living in New York and dancing at the Savoy. And one wonders how he got there. So the, uh, when we found out that he was at Temple University, um, a little bit of research showed that Temple University was actually one of the, mo uh, one of the more or most diverse mostly white colleges at the time. I don't think there was any real true diverse college at the time. You either had black universities or white universities uh, that were becoming a little bit more diverse. And so Temple University in Philadelphia was one of the more diverse um, at the time. And so then after, after college or uh, four years passed, we don't know uh, what his college experience was like, but that four years later, he's back in Wilkes bar and by the way, Wilkes Bar has these great T-shirts that say that has a Wilkes and then it has like a bear and a Wilkes and like a strawberry and or Wilkes and then like, a, you know, a saloon as a way of saying that, like, there are so many different ways you can pronounce 
Wilkes Bar, B-A-R-R-E. And so some people are like Wilkes Bear, some people are Wilkes Berry, some people are Wilkes Bar. And there's actually a fourth one that Lewis and I talked about, which is Wilkes Barra, which is the way my granny would have said it. My granny would have said Wilkes Barra. And can, uh, like I, and can I interject there? Because this is where I wanted to go with pronunciation. Um, I think Chisomo might particularly like this. Is one of the details, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the details on the last um, census that we see uh, John Wesley recorded on, he's living just around the corner from the Savoy. And it, as I say, it lists where you're from. And written in the space is Wilkesborough, spelt incorrectly, but with borough. And one wonders if the reason for that is that the census return officer has had clearly has written it down as it has been said to him. Orally. He's not spelling it yeah, orally. So either um, Wesley himself or somebody describing it as Wesley had described where he was from has orally said Wilkesboro and the census officer not knowing what town that might be has written it in. And in fact, they've had to cross it out because it doesn't exist in that spelling <laughs> so you just get this beautiful tiny little historic um detail about something you can't hear but you know the historical record of the pronunciation of things is very tricky but they in that one little line there's just a little um indication of someone's accent and one thing uh, i should mention specifically why I was harping on the way my granny said it is because I grew up in Georgia and something that's been an ongoing story in researching, especially the Savoy Lindy hoppers is the, is the fact of the great migration and how many of these Lindy hoppers came from Southern families, including John Bunch's family. They came from North Carolina. Uh, we found out and uh, and so for me, that's one reason why when I heard, when I saw Wilkes Bar written down, I was like, I wonder if they would pronounce it Wilkes Burra, because that's in my head the way that anyone from the old time in the South, uh, in my experience, had said it. So that's that's why I mentioned my granny. Yeah. Uh, these kind of conjectures, yeah. though, we're going to talk about how these kind of conjectures mm -hmm. that, you know, for instance, I might have just made there can be a problem. <laughs> um, I can I can I jump in? I've got yes, like absolutely. I've got a, I've got a question and I also um there's in thinking a little bit about um the civil war and the 19th century and the transition between the 19th century into the 20th century and like we I've been building for myself uh kind of like a, a map of societal societal oppression <laughs> so as you talk about um the ebb and flow in the north of like what was what was understood to be okay like with specifically with tiny bunch um he was his family was regarded and respected but there was also a sense of injustice in that they couldn't go to the ymca and you have this incredibly gifted athlete that um couldn't exist in in what would have been the white YMCA. And um, anyway, so I was reading an article um, and the article was about um, the Civil War. And so the quote that seems to fit in here is, as history inarguably demonstrates, life for free African-Americans in the post-bellum North was subject to just as many miseries and injustices as in the South. And although one region outpaced the other in the formal abolition of slavery, neither was immune to the informal uh, perpetration of inequities established by slave trade. And so um, I feel like that's a really important thing, even now as we're in North America, as we're in the US uh, feeling the echoes of of slavery and Lewis, as you are in the UK, right? <laughs> so um, we're all kind of united with this. And, and the name of that article, so I can be a good academic, my uh, my boss who's all about APA would come after me if I didn't tell you the name of the article and the person who um, who wrote it. So the for the last time, the American Civil War was not about states' rights. That's the name of the article. And then the person I was quoting is Jake Flan Flanagan. So there you go. Nice. Thank um, you for that. Yeah, no problem. But I think that that kind of like ties into what we're talking about. Like, um, we think in the North that things were sorted out 
and in some ways they were, and then in some ways they weren't. And um, so you have a thought, Shani, and then yeah, I, mean, I was actually it goes back to uh, Lewis was talking about the region had been part of the Underground Railroad prior to the Civil War. Um, and I think that's one of those layers of the North being progressive in that moment. But then once the Civil War is over and you have that migration, once they become confronted with the physicality of actual Black people in their spaces more, then you see that shifting kind of going back and forth that you're talking about of oppression. Um, if there aren't a lot of Black people in your spaces, you're willing to help them out in some ways. But if suddenly you're confronted with a threat of a lot of new people, you interact with them differently. And I think that's also talks to how that generation or those changes happened over time in that region. Yeah. Yeah. And then my other question, and this may or may not be relevant, so, but it's, um, you said that researching a Black dancer is a little bit different. And so I'm assuming that the difference is between researching uh, Black individuals as compared to white individuals, Black dancers as compared to white dancers. Um, so could you explain why it was a little bit different. And then also yeah. um, you mentioned that you are a fashion person, but you didn't really emphasize how incredible you are in that. Um, so I, I personally, I know Louis, you and I have actually not ever had this conversation, but your um, reputation precedes you. But I'd like for you to tell um, our audience, us a little bit more about you and why you have such a robust background in researching and kind of following these rabbit trails and so on. Shall I, I'd like to cover first the um, why researching a black uh, dancer is different from a white uh, dancer because that's just in my mind first and so I'll, I'll, I'll describe both these as two separate things so you can edit um, which way around do you want to go? Um, but just because the black dancer thing is just in my mind, because I, I, it, it's a so researching a black dancer from a white dancer um, has been a fascinating and well, it, and continues to be a fascinating thing to do, both as a researcher and also just as a human being, because it is so revealing about so many layers of things from just simple things things that look like they're one thing or another or vice versa. So some examples, if I look at, I've been looking a lot at, at um, Baba dancers in California and I can look at a dancer there. I can usually find a family in a house. They'll be there for three decades. I can trace a continuous line. Um, there's often a, a direct lineage to us, to a European origin that you can, you can, um, follow. Um, that's one experience. I'm looking at the uh, the Lindy Hoppers I've looked at. The, um, the the nature of where they're living is different. I'm seeing families where they they're in an address for a very short amount of time. This might also be to do with the fact they're living in a city, but I'm seeing um, uh, a different kind of. Um, uh, movement around the place. It, it's much more um, changing. You'll see somebody in an address the next year, they're not there. I've seen dancers um, that are sharing space with each other in one example. It's, it's just a different, you, I, I don't know what it means, but you see different information. Um, a very specific example is that draft cards are fantastic for swing dance historians. They come in 1941. They obviously only cover um, 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 male dancers who've drafted, but they give you height, weight, which are great if you're trying to identify people. They're a good clue. They give you an address. They give you a relationship with somebody and an employer, and you can compare these with information from censuses to identify people. And the other thing they do that you never come across in a European record is they record your skin color. And they record your skin color regardless of your race. So white has a range. I think it's one of them is ruddy, there's fair. I've got it right here. Let's see. Oh. Yeah. You've got uh, complexion from the, from the lightest to the darkest, I assume. 
Sallow, light, ruddy, dark, freckled, light brown, dark brown, black. And this, uh, this is, uh, oh, this is Tiny Bunch draft card. Uh, for those of you, you can see this on the article, on the Swingover article, but for those of you watching, that's not helpful at all either. But uh, it has, uh, Sallow has a line across and then light brown has a check mark. So maybe they had a different, they had a few different checking style uh, things. That's interesting. So it might say somebody like I am uh, light brown, but sallow, like I might have like that sort of more yellow skin tone than somebody who's hmm. light brown and just light brown, or maybe my aunt is freckled in light brown. So they might've hmm. indicated that in some way. Oh, wow. Details, I guess, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's an interesting thing because part of me is massively uncomfortable with that as a record and then part of me and this is part of something that that I'm looking at which I think reflects how we are living at the moment with a response to racism and then looking at racism historically is racism has got its own history and it changes and so I also have to think well if I'm in the military and I need a, a method of identifying a body without the use of photographs, it is just yeah. a very practical way of making sure that you've got the right person. So is it racist? Is it not racist? It's a, is it, you know, it's a very complicated um, piece of recording from a time that we know had racism in it. Um, as, a, as a researcher, it's um, very useful because um, and it's awful, but it's a way of, of being able to sift through information. Um, in the census, the race is also recorded uh, rather more brutally from its white, Negro, I've seen uh, Mexican, mulatto, and a couple of other descriptions. Um, but as a search tool, if I'm trying to uh, find a black dancer um, in New York, where there might be, you know, 400 James Flynn's, I can use it as a tool to narrow that down to 15 people who I can realistically check. Um, it's a very peculiar relationship with a, um, you know, a very complicated and problematic way that people are recording and, and you know, reducing people to statistics. Uh, the interesting thing with the census is, of course, people often put their own information on a census. So that adds another layer of, of um, you know, I filled in a census form myself. However, I also discovered looking at censuses that sometimes they didn't. The census officer would go to your address, you wouldn't be there, and the information might have been left by a neighbor or a friend. Um, and if you're in a community where maybe you don't want the people to know where you live, or you're maybe, um, you know, doing some illicit rent sharing that you shouldn't be doing, you're not gonna be on the census at all and that is one of the key things i've discovered is many black dancers are not on any census i and, can't find them anywhere yeah and i think another important reason for that is just a natural distrust of the government mm. so yeah yeah some of them might have been up to you know they just didn't want people to know their information but some of them were truly i assume distrustful of having american government know their record especially you know c considering how america has treated black americans in the past but yeah, I, I, cool. I was to say the community is moving around a lot, right? Like they're off on tour, they're off playing in bands, they're taking work, mm. um, they're taking domestic work, they're following wherever the construction or industrial work is moving around at the time. So like, that's why they don't move around a lot. But that's also why within even a year, they may not be there to be checked by the census kind of a thing mm. uh, in their life. They don't have sedentary work life, Shoot. white collar life. Yeah. Hey everybody, this is Bobby White from Integrated Rhythm. We're here to ask you to please consider donating to the podcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash integrated rhythm. You can do so by Venmoing at Bobby Swungover. And make sure to put a little IR in the note so we make sure it goes to the right people. You can also do so by PayPaling at Bobby White 3. And once again, putting a little IR in the, in the window there. 
Doing so will help us keep this podcast going, and we love doing it, and we hope you love it too. If you can't afford to donate at this time because times are rough, we totally understand. We don't want you to put yourselves out. We want you to keep enjoying the podcast for free. However, if you have a little bit of pocket change in your pocket, we would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks, and have a great day. Hi everyone, this is Bobby from Integrated Rhythm. I'm here to tell you that you can do your civic duty to the world of jazz and jazz dance arts by a very simple thing. You can buy from black businesses. This puts money back in the black American community and allows them to grow and thrive, which is what they deserve for being so awesome. You can do this. It's very easy. The next time you need a thing, you can go onto the internet and type in the name of that thing and then say black-owned business. And hopefully that will point you to some black businesses that are providing that thing that you need. It's that easy. We hope you enjoy it. Integrated Rhythm. We're back. And I know that um, the accuracy of information, like if you're talking about birth dates and all this other stuff is also really interesting. I mean, I know I can speak from my family's perspective. Like we just, um, national registration cards and keeping track of people uh, is a rather new idea within um, Zambian history because of like, we just, we just became independent in 1964. That's in memorable history. Like my mom was alive before that. Um, and so dates and things and all of that can be recorded, maybe not always accurately. Going back to Bobby's idea of like, why, like who benefits, who benefits from having that information and historically who has benefited. So it kind of makes sense from the black perspective to be like, to maybe not always appreciate it because you're not necessarily going to benefit. Yeah. There's also uh, another thing that's come up in our research, uh, that seems to be a reason for something in our research is, you know, for instance, uh, Frankie Manning talks about like the great swing dance competition where the, he did the air step and, you know, the crowd went wild and it kind of changed the shape of Lindy hop. Uh, when you go through the newspaper articles of the time, the Savoy does advertise some contest, but it's like three or four of them. And it's total history period that you can find like little details on. And so the weekly Lindy Hop contest or the big contest throwdown between such and such and such and such, that isn't put in the newspaper. And uh, as something that historian Judy Pritchett uh, put really clearly, she was like, when you're in Harlem, the word is on the street. It's not in the newspaper. Like it's such a tight knit community that, you know, the party's going down in the Savoy because you had five neighbors tell you that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, maybe another thing that we're experiencing is that the Harlem community itself is a tightly knit community who looks out for one another or whatever. And so therefore they don't actually have to or have their information posted in newspapers or have, you know, these things advertised or whatever. So this would be a good little moment to explain this other dis difference between um, white research and then looking at a black community is that very issue of a newspaper. So when I look at most of the subjects I research, I look through a newspaper archive and I find some information and that's great. And you'll notice um, in lots of the communities around the US, there's very little information about black dancing communities from newspapers. But that's from a white perspective, because what I didn't realize, because of course I'd never read one, was there was a whole range of black newspapers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those black newspapers aren't on, many of them, the generally available archive sites. And that is why you don't find lots of the records about, for example, the black dancing community in California, because it's quite difficult to find those resources. Um, and when you do find them, you find a whole bunch of information that you would never find published in a white newspaper. So um, that's a sort of a tangible example of, of sort of white perspective, not even realizing that such a thing existed because I just didn't know personally. Um, uh, and also how the record is distorted because that information is not as equally available 
I mean, for example, one black archive I'm looking at, I'm having to look through um, these sort of old-fashioned microfiched Pictures. pages that are white paper. You'd have, you'd have found that on a, with a white resource 30 years ago. Now it's all digitized. You can search it with online source resources. I mean, you know, the fact that there's even that discrepancy, that racist discrepancy in looking at an archive is... is is um, I mean it's it's appalling, but also you know I have no idea. It's terrible. I should have realised that. I didn't. One of, one I know things, now. <laughs> one of the things that is nice is on our newspaper archive. One of the main ones that we use for research is they have both the New York Daily News, which is the big Manhattan, more white uh, population-oriented newspaper, but they also have the New York Age, which is the Manhattan's black newspaper. And so it's also interesting to go through and see what the New York Age, the black newspaper, you know, publishes versus not publishing. So, for instance, uh, the Savoy is is almost only mentioned in either advertisements or in like as it it's used as a community center. And so like the Elks Lodge met at the Savoy Ballroom and here's the stuff that went down, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so they themselves, they, they would occasionally mention Lindy Hop. Uh, especially when like they were really proud of the of the Savoy dancers who would win the Harvest Moon Ball or that kind of thing. Um, but otherwise, it, you don't find the you don't find Lindy Hop talked about very much at all, for instance, in the New York Age, the Manhattan's black newspaper. So newspaper journalists weren't running around following dancers trying to get their, you know, expose take that they could write up, a, you know, an article on the uh, the great week that they had out in Europe and whatever. Yeah, no, they weren't doing that, unfortunately. How are we to know, like, Lewis, you're saying that you had no idea about this. And um, this is such uh, a, a kind of pertinent example, such a relevant example of how history is fragmented and our ways of knowing, our ways of coming to content um, are inherently biased and and inherently racist. Like, we that I mean how <laughs> there are these different archives there's these different systems and we don't know about an entire system right and so it's there was no way for you to know unless you dug no, really it, deep. It, it's a good example of how you you don't know the thing because you're in it right and and yeah. when you can get your head I mean it's a slightly peculiar idea to get your head around and when you realize it you do realize why it's it is difficult for people uh, one of the things I think is interesting about the BLM uh, impact of the, the message um, that, that I think they very successfully um, broadcast is that, that it, say for someone my age, my definition of racism is out of date. You know, my definition of racism was, you know, equal rights and not thinking apart, you know, fighting apartheid. But that's, that's out of date. You know, the black community is saying, well, that's great, but we're still suffering from this, we need to do more. And um, if you are in, embedded in this, this problem, it's hard to recognize that, that you do need to do more because you think, well, I've already, been, I've already signed the petitions and, and been not racist, you know, but it's like, no, but we need to be more, more, yeah, less, you know, we need to ramp this up. And I think it is difficult. And, and when you start recognizing something through something like recognizing that an archive is racist, it's more easy to get to say to yourself, oh God, what else am I, goodness, what else am I doing? Or, you know, what else is, is in my belief system that is, that is distorted by racism? You know, what my understanding of African history is distorted because, you know, I've been presented with this European view and it, what, does it harm me to, to change that? And my mind is, no, it doesn't harm me at all. It, it, it's very beneficial. It's fascinating, it's interesting, and it's good for me as a human being. So, um, you know, th these are, as I was saying, these are examples to me that help me recognize what, where this problem exists in my own sort of understanding of things and how I can um, escape from it, really. Because I don't think it's healthy to carry that. It's always good to get rid of, of you know, bad perspectives. Uh, yeah, um, I think that historically, um, 
we have, like what you're talking about, this outdated perspective of racism. I think that in our common vernacular, we think of, we're in our uh, discussion with Shani, we're talking about racist behaviors versus racism and the ideological perspectives that are per pervasive, that are everywhere. Um, and so we, whenever we want to impact change in our community, we look at things that can be measured, right? And so it, with apartheid, there's a clear dif distinction between what people, uh, between access to things, right? And so we saw that with segregation, with apartheid, that um, like even thinking about the YMCA in this case, right? So um, there, it, there are, there's the same place with two different patrons with, and with two different experiences and two different um, levels of access in terms of resources. And so all of those things are quantifiable. And so we're thinking about like, what are the things that we can quantify? What's great about the conversation right now is exactly what you're talking about, where we're beginning to push back. Well, first of all, there are lots of quantifiable resources that we need to manage. Um, there, there are healthcare disparities, there are disparities in terms of education, There's, there are things that we can still count. Um, but beyond that, when, when we have relationships where, uh, that are interracial and we have experiences that are multicultural, people are thinking like, but I'm not racist because I'm, I'm allow, I allow myself to exist in these different spaces. But that's not the issue. The issue is more nuanced than that. It has to do with, with personhood, and it has to do with um, who is ex who is expected to who has access certain to certain things. Who has access to the broad spectrum of their humanity? Whose life is normal? What it, what is center? And um, and when we think about yeah, so I'll I'll stop there. I have lots of rants, but I'll stop there. <laughs> so, but I yes, one hundred percent. Uh, I guess some, something I'd love to kind of end on is maybe um, talking a little bit about what, what it means for Lewis and I as, as non-Black people to be researching Black history and Black culture. And, you know, uh, so, some of the things that, um, you know, we talk about or some of the things that have come up are like, you know, first off, I, how careful we have to be with conjecture because our conjecture is coming from a very specific cultural lens. Uh, so for uh, an example of that is like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, where like, okay, well, I, I can conjecture that uh, they might have pronounced Wilkes-Barre a certain way, because that's the way that my Southern relatives would have pronounced it, you know, which is a lot of, that's a pretty, you know, that's, that's a pretty big conjecture. Uh, and, and just that we, you know, I as a historian, you know, you, you're, you're picking up what you're doing is you're picking up a puzzle piece. You know, you don't get the whole, you don't get all the puzzle pieces in the box when you buy it, right? You, you find a puzzle piece here and you find a puzzle piece there and you try to see how they link together and how you have to be careful trying to link them together because I don't know what John's life was like. And we can, we can read all these things. We can, we can determine all these things from facts. Like he had a lot of relatives close to him die. And his, in fact, his mother and father and grandmother were all dead before he was like in his mid twenties. Right. So we can gather, he probably had a really shitty mid twenties. Like he's probably had a very tragic outlook at that time. Um, and then you see him moving to Harlem. And so you're like, okay, well, is, is, is he moving to Harlem to like get away from tragedy? Is he moving to Harlem to get away from a predominantly white town does he want to go to a place that's where he's going to see people more like him um you know you, you have all these reasons why he might move there and maybe i've seen too many like marvel movies and want this like origin story to be like this beautiful thing when in reality we just don't know you know what his life was like going over there uh another thing that we have to be careful of is um how much we uncover and how much we tell of what we uncover. So for instance, like it's really exciting for us to be like, oh my God, we got this piece of information and this piece of information and this piece of information. But let's say that a descendant of John Bunch who's alive today finds this article. Are they gonna feel like, oh, excited that their relative is, is like coming to light in this particular group of people? Or are they gonna feel like their privacy is invaded? Um, 
yeah, I don't know. So, so those are just, those are some things that I've been thinking about. Well, and sorry. And the fact is that you are like, you can't change who you are. So the story is being told from a white person's perspective. Like, so that's, that's another thing that's hard in this, right? That it's just the inevitable fact that, that it's the lens that you look through, right? It is the inevitable lens that you look through, but not all academic historians um, take a chance at putting other lenses in front of their face to see what they've missed. And I've been uh, very proud, honored to, to know the two of you that do that, um, that knowing that you have a certain lens because other people will come out there. I have my lens. This is what I've discovered. I'm going to put it out there. Um, irrespective of my take on it might be inaccurate somewhat uh, or might be biased in some way. But you, you've done, Bobby and, and Lewis have done a, a good job of trying to say, what am I missing? Um, before they even take that last step so that even if, yes, it's gonna be published by a, a white person, it's still taken more things into account than just their perspective, I guess, um, is, uh, is a more thorough way of doing research. I and, and something, if, if Sean doesn't mind, I'd love to mention, so uh, we ran the article by Shawnee before we published it, you know, just to make sure we didn't, Horrify, horrifyingly mess up anything or and uh, I had written this one sentence that um, Shawnee had some notes on and so the sentence was uh, at the end it's the end of the article I'm talking about how um, well I'll just say it John's story should remind us that all uh, John's story should remind us all that this dance is open to all and all should be actively welcome to this dance. So I'm talking about uh, him being a larger than average person. Uh, and then I said the sentence, black American artistic values have traditionally valued all body types as part of individuality and the human experience. And this is something that was my lens. Like this is something that I had seen from like seeing my African dance classes or seeing like African dancing or in throughout, you know, clips and all this kind of stuff. And so I had projected this very specific idea. Ashaya, do you mind talking a little bit about like, I don't know what what that brought up for you? Um, yeah, so I, in one side, I'm like, yes, but like my, my improv is yes, but not yes and, but yes, but. <laughs> um, but, but you're also looking at a, a much shinier, nicer, healthier side of what the black community puts out and not what's internalized in the black community where, Yes, there is a range of body types and yes, there is often celebration of a range of body types within our community, but there is still a lot of pressure, internalized um, sort of white uh, biases that we have that make small framed people more uh, uh, valued in the community, different skin colors, like we talked about colorism being valued in the community. And that even varies depending on what parts of the African community you're talking about. Um, so to say either African-Americans or now we have an African diaspora in America, like it's such a layered thing. And I'm like, that is a hard place to conjecture. Like it's definitely a, a part of the experience and it is often something that does happen, but it is not true 100% in terms of it's not widely always accepted. And that's a nuance, man. Nuance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's such a great example of how, like, uh, had I not had Shani's perspective, that probably would have ended up in the ultimate article, even if, like, years later, I would have looked back at it and been like, ah, that was a conjecture I probably should not have jumped for. Like, I want body positivity to be a part of the message, but to also say that that's also only a, a Black cultural dynamic too is also wrong because it comes in other cultures as well, body positivity, um, as well as it's not always true in our own community. So, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And recognizing the power that history has and the storytellers, right? And so, um, Shani, to your point, Bobby and Lewis take intentional care in their power as storytellers and in their power as white men. And so we can't separate them from their whiteness, but, but by virtue of exposure to different perspectives and um, asking questions, we can start to see things in a more nuanced way. And so- As a whole picture on all sides, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Different and, parties. And, see, yeah. 
and same with history when you're talking about um we were we were talking about the original baboa dancers and the other episode uh with shawnee um that bobby reminded us that racism was still there like it would be really tempting to hear the story and be like ah oh, wow what a multicultural space there was no racism racism was still there it's like the water right but it 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 presents itself slightly differently in different spaces. And so. Well, it's something that Lewis and, you know, what you mentioned, it reminded me something that Lewis and I talk about is, is how you do this interesting trick as a historian of both lifting something up and getting out of the, getting out of the way. Yeah. Like how do we like tell the story and then like make sure that we're not in the spotlight of that story. Um, and it's, it's also kind of, you know, it can be tricky sometimes like in COVID when like, uh, you know, this, this article I'm writing, I'm also asking for donations for to help me kind of like fund the research. Uh, and, and there's that kind of like weird guilt of like, if I, if I do the thing and like put it up and then say, by the way, if you could pay me a little bit, that would be great. Um, you know, is, is that like stepping, it, how much am I like stepping into the picture with that? Um, and and, and on top different of that- than say Michael Stearns who placed himself in the picture often of the research that he was presenting as, yeah. as, wonderful as an academic as he was, he centered himself a lot in those spaces and, and yeah. you're pushing and, back on that. And maybe the, donation, maybe the donations is not the best example either. Um, but like, uh, you know, if, if you write with a certain, you know, if, if you, you want to write powerfully and, and you want to write, you know, if you want to write powerfully, but writing powerfully gives your voice, put your voice into the Center. product kind of thing. Like, I don't know, it's just really interesting to like, try to I think I think there's a balance though isn't there I mean I, I err on the side of I like to try and aim for accuracy I try and be very impartial partly because as you're describing you know different people have different perspectives and they can't put their perspective on if you've smothered it in personal view bias inaccuracy and misinformation but you've also got the other end where you need to make the information intriguing and meaningful and uh, encourage more research. So I, I think that there's a kind of line between something so dry that nobody cares and also something so overly romanticized that it's meaningless. Um, and so that there's not a perfect route through that, but understanding that there's the danger of either enables you to do the best, the best you can from whatever position you're in. Um, the, the thing that I think is very dangerous, which I don't like because I've experienced it in my other field, is how you can inadvertently create uh, in misinformation, often accidentally, that becomes embedded so strongly that you create a completely new thing that is completely erroneous and you can never get rid of. And I've seen that happen um, and I wouldn't want to see it happen uh, in an area as important as um, you know the history of this dance, which people are recognizing. Well, we uh, have seen it happen. You well. and I have talked about how <laughs> yeah. we've literally seen a piece of misinformation, a piece of casual conversation, a piece of something that wasn't looked into any more deeply can become the nexus of a story yeah. that the entire community <laughs> tells itself. Um, heck, even in my own family, like the idea that we're Native American on the white side of the family turns out to be a story that people have been telling themselves for a long time right until you learn more accurately with genetics or whatever um, that stories are different but i actually uh, bobby something you said earlier about getting out of the way um, of that uh, piece of information and, and lewis is something you and i have talked about um, is that to encourage other people to do their own research you have to you also can't feign ownership of the information yeah, either yeah, yeah because if you own the information then nobody else is like and it's mine and it's my story to tell and you can't go out and add more to that then people stop academic research or interest right, right there um, so it's important that like we get these stories out there but not in such a way that like this is my story to tell that then other people can't learn more from it's the same way with, with me and willie like it's my experience with willie is mine to tell but him and his history and his research is it's his story that many people can go out and excavate. And I have many pieces, but there are other people with pieces that shouldn't be, you know, quieted and, and there's still more to find. Um, and and Shani, I think that that's my, that was my point about not being able to separate yourself from your whiteness, you know, like you, you have your vantage point and 
when I think about the concept of unconscious bias, we do our best to try to uncover our biases and uncover our perspective, but there's still layers of ourselves that we don't always realize. Um, and there's still, because a lot of the talk about unconscious bias leads us to believe that we can rid ourselves of bias, but we can't, we cannot rid ourselves of bias, but what we can do is acknowledge and state what we know of ourselves, what we know to be true about history. And, and, and Bobby and Lewis, you are doing that. And by asking these questions, what is missing? Um, my colleague asks the question, who benefits? And I love that question. Um, and then also when we think about dismantling systems of oppression and our role in that, there's also the question of like, of what is the cost? What's, what is it going to cost me personally to engage in this fight? And it's not just what is it going to cost me now? Um, and I think this is what I was trying to get at earlier. Like we want to have a checkbox. We want to say, oh, I did the thing. This thing cost me my time on December 25th, 2020. I, d I did it. You know, I gave up my Christmas for racism. It's done. Um, and so I like, solved it, but, but it's this question of what is it going to cost me continually as I research, how am I going to continue to try to get out of the way? How am I going to contribute to this conversation? So, yeah. How will I handle criticism and feedback when more information comes back down the line? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Integrated Rhythm. We'd first off like to thank Tom Blair for his fantastic advice and Robots Radio Network for all of their support. We'd also like to thank Michelle Stokes and Laurel Ryan for their musical musings. Thank you so much for our yeah. introduction, our outro, and anything, any sound things you hear in the middle that are really cool, that's them. We appreciate you. And special thanks to Jessica Miltenberger for her enduring support, not only of this podcast and the inner workings thereof, but also as my wife. And great gratitude goes out to our friends and family who are the shoulders that we lean on and the ears that we speak to. If you listen to this podcast, you're part of that, and we appreciate your enduring support. <laughs>